All right, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter number 7 this morning. Isaiah chapter number 7. Now, my plan is for the next uh, at least four weeks is to take themes from Isaiah that relate to Christmas or relate to the Savior and His work. And uh, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9 are, are two very famous prophecies about uh, about Christ. And we'll probably do, uh, we got the one this week and we'll do the other next week, I believe. Uh, we're, we'll get off into some other stuff a little bit later on, but um, I'm very excited about doing this. It's been really hard. I, I tell you, I've, last few years I have done, tried to do Christmas series uh, for the month of December, and as I sat down and tried to come up with one, I was really, really struggling. And I thought about it, I was, like, I was like, ah, I don't know, that sounds like a little bit too hard. I, I don't know if that would work. And I had another idea that didn't really work out as I got into it. And I kept going back to Isaiah. And I was like, okay, so that's what we're going to do. And Isaiah is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I, I really wish I had uh, an opportunity to, to really dig into it, uh, like as a, a class saying, make myself sit down, put together the notes and things, because I love studying it. It's kind of it's been on that to-do list for quite some time, and its themes are some of the highest, some of the loftiest in the Bible. Its style is of I think the highest. It is it's it's almost poetry in the way that Isaiah writes and speaks, and it contains some of the most important prophecies and descriptions of of, of Christ, of what he would come to do on earth and what he will do in the future, still for us today. We're going to read in Isaiah chapter number 7. Uh, we're just going to read the first 16 verses of this. And we're going to get in. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the background of what's going on here. Uh, setting up uh, this very famous, very familiar prophecy of the coming Christ. This is, uh, I think the date was in uh, Reese's Chronological Bible, I think it was 722 B.C., something like that. Uh, we're, we're going back quite a bit, over seven centuries before the birth of Christ with these events. So uh, chapter number 7, let's begin in verse number 1. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remelia, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, and his heart was moved in the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jeshub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field, that's on the west side of Jerusalem is what I read, verse 4, and say unto him, Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and of the son of Ramalia, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. 
Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Verse 10, Moreover the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Give you a little bit of, uh, I kept wanting to, as I was reading throughout, stop, let me explain, let me explain who this is, what's going on. There's a lot of history that, that goes on in here. The king of Judah... His name is Ahaz. He's not one of your more famous ones. If I asked you to list out five or six kings of Israel or Judah, he would not be on the list. He's not as famous as, as David or Solomon or even Rehoboam or Hezekiah or Uzziah, so many of these other ones. His grandfather, actually spoiled it there, his grandfather's name was Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. He did much right in the 52 years of his reign. Until, and the sad story of him is, and you can trace this uh, very well through Chronicles, is until he got lifted up in pride. He did really good until he got a little comfortable and started thinking a little too highly of himself. He ends up trying to offer incense in the temple. He tried to go in and croach upon the priest's office, saying, well, I'm a king, I can do what I want. The priest stopped him from doing it, but... God judged him by, by, by striking him with leprosy. The king of the great kingdom of Judah stricken him with leprosy. Once that happens, and I think that's very late in his reign, that uh, his son Jotham becomes his co-ruler and then will end up succeeding Uzziah after he dies. Jotham, who's the father of the Ahaz that we read about here in chapter 7, he would go on and he would be a good king. We get two good kings in a row for the most part. And uh, if he reigns for 16 years. And Second uh, Chronicles 27.2 says this, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did. Howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord. I said, well, he didn't go worship? No, what's saying is he didn't act a fool like his father did and go try to offer incense in the temple. That's what that means. It didn't mean he didn't worship. In fact, he repairs the gate, I believe it is, uh, going into the temple, if I'm remembering right. So anyway, but the last part of that says, and the people did yet corruptly. So you can see, even though there's some good kings, there's an undercurrent of evil at play in the nation. Jotham dies and his son Ahaz takes the throne. Ahaz breaks from the good ways of Uzziah and Jotham. The book of Chronicles describes his reign this way in chapter 28, 2 uh, Chronicles 28, 1-4. through 4. 
Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the king of Israel, like the northern kingdom, the ways of Ahab, the ways of Jeroboam. It made also molten images for Balaam. He's an idolater. He's creating and promoting the worship of idols. Verse 3, Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. This is the, the God known as Molech that would sacrifice infants, burn them alive in sacrifice to this horrible, wicked, vile, pagan, false god. And here's the king of Judah, who can look out of his palace and see the temple, who is offering his own children as sacrifice. Verse 4, He sacrificed also and burned incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. It's widespread. It's being promoted this guy doesn't just turn a little bit. He does a 180 from the way the good ways that were established before him. And in reaction to this, God does not allow his reign to be a peaceful one. It's actually full of trouble. You have on the horizon coming into play and getting a little bit past this, and I won't be able to get into some of this, but you have Assyria, the great world empire that's really just coming up into its own. It's just getting into its stride. You have it, it's the shadow of it looming on the horizon. Then you have just north of there, after the kingdom split, the northern kingdom of Israel under King Pekah and his army. Uh, and, 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 or him, and he is the enemy of Judah. Sometimes the, 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 the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel, sometimes they get along okay, sometimes they fight. This is one of these really hostile periods between the two. Then you have north of that the kingdom of Syria, up around Damascus. A king named Rezin is, uh, is up there on the throne, and he is also the avowed enemy of Judah. So holding on to Ahaz, holding on to his kingdom, is extremely difficult in these very, very troublesome times. And here we have the story. There's an alliance made between Israel, the northern kingdom. By the way, think about this. Those are their brothers, their cousins. It's the tribes of Israel infighting. It's a civil war, if you will. But they ally themselves with the kingdom of Syria, Damascus. And they have come down to attack Judah. And they planned on conquering the house of David, conquering this kingdom and bringing it into their fold, making it a servant to them, putting their own puppet ruler on there so they could rule this kingdom. Second Chronicles 28 tells about uh, some of this campaign as they come down and move against Judah. And I, I, I don't know this seems to be probably before Isaiah chapter number 7. It's a little hard to tell. But as, uh, 2 Chronicles 28.5 says, Wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria, and they smote him, talking about Ahaz, and carried away a great multitude of them captives and brought them to Damascus. And he, all, he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who smote him with a great slaughter. So back-to-back -back losses, back-to-back 
defeats, men killed, people taken captive, slaves. Verse 6 says, And Pekah, or for Pekah the son of Ramalia, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, which were all valiant men because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. 120,000 men falling in a single battle. I looked it up, and in history, you think of great military defeats, and a lot of people will go to the uh, the Roman Battle of Cannae, and it was just a, a terrible, terrible defeat. Those Carthaginian forces surrounded them and just destroyed multiple Roman legions. Yet only about half that many died in that disastrous battle, and it's considered one of the great disasters in history. I looked it up, and I thought, well, in modern times, D-Day, the loss of life, and that's barely a tenth of the casualties of what they saw on this one day, 120,000. It's a tremendous, backbreaking loss. It doesn't stop there in Second Chronicles 28.7. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim from the northern kingdom, slew Messiah, the, the king's son, Ezrikam, the governor of the house, and Elkanah that was next unto the king. So you have this one uh, you know, army ranger, special forces guy come in. He kills the prince, the heir. He kills the prime minister. He's killing the leadership. The king survives, but he's killed off three of the next heads of state below the king. In verse 8 it says, And the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and took away also much spoil with them and brought them to Samaria. 200,000 taken captive, 120 dead on the battlefield, 200,000 taken enslaved from their homes. And I think that's even worse when you realize they're related. It's the, these are the Jews. They're, they're battling against themselves in this. A prophet named Obed ends up interceding and those, those captives are allowed to return home lest this become even more of a terrible tragedy. And then we get to this here in Isaiah chapter number 7. The middle of this chaos, the middle of all this loss, God is trying to get the attention of His people. He's trying to get Ahaz's attention, trying to turn him back to what is right. And Ahaz finds his capital, the walled city of Jerusalem, besieged. And he makes a very desperate and ill-fated decision in this. I think this is probably a little bit after Isaiah 7, but just to give you an idea of how his brain is working. 2 Kings chapter 16 tells us that as he's being pressured by these armies, he doesn't look to the Lord, he looks towards earthly powers. And he looks to that rising world empire of Assyria for assistance. In 2 Kings 16, verses 7-9, through 9, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pelesar, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Syria. And the king of Syria, of, of Assyria, of Syria. it's so hard to say, you've got Syria and Assyria. You've got to be very careful when you say these. 
And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Kir and slew Rezin. I think that's still future, but that's what's in the back of Ahaz's mind. He's got a plan. This is his heart. He does not trust God. Others of the kings will be surrounded and they'll look up and say, God, what do I do? God, I repent. God, we turn from our sins. God, we are trusting in You. Please deliver us. But he doesn't trust in God. He doesn't serve God. He does not even seek God. Even some of the bad kings, they get in trouble. They'll still go and look after and find out, okay, well, I'm desperate. I'll try anything. I'll even try God. I'll I'll, I'll see what's going on. But he decides he'll solve the problem himself through diplomacy. He'll give away, by the way, the treasures of the temple are nothing to him. That happens many times in the history of the Jews. These enemies come in like, we'll just sacrifice these sacred things so you'll leave us alone. And also of his palace, all these riches his forefathers have, have gathered, all the glory and splendor uh, of the temple where they worship the true God. It's nothing to him. He'll send it off to Assyria is bribery. So they'll come in on his side in a battle. But before he can make that final mistake, that the terrible mistake, and I love this about God. God knows us. God knows we mess up. And God will usually warn us. I'm a believer. I don't think God judges us and we don't have, you know, look at him, God, what are you doing? I think God's like, I told you what, what's going on. And God sends the prophet Isaiah to him with a message. And that's what we read here in Isaiah 7. Isaiah confronts the king, uh, this description's on the west side of Jerusalem. His message is Ahaz, you don't need to worry. You got an army out there, we're besieged. You're losing hope. But God's still in control. God will not allow the enemy to have the victory. I kind of like this uh, in the, kind of the way, it's, the way everything's worded. It's not that God will let Ahaz win. <laughs> it's that we're not going to let the enemy win. He doesn't want to necessarily promote Ahaz, but he wants the enemy defeated. God's not going to let... Well, that's not because of Ahaz. By the way, I believe it's for the preservation of David's line. It talked about they wanted to put a son from somebody else. They wanted a different line, a non-Davidic line on the throne. By the way, that's important. The Messiah would come through that line. The same line promised, oh, good night. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15, the woman's seed. Go to Abraham, go to David. It just it gets closer and closer, and it it, it wills its way down to. It's talking about Christ. You look at Isaiah ten, or, or verse seven, or chapter seven, verse number ten, eleven. It says, "Moreover, the Lord spake un, again unto Ahaz." By the way, Ahaz doesn't want to believe him. Ahaz doesn't want to believe. He doesn't want to turn to God. But God says in verse eleven, "Ask thee a sign." I'll give you a sign, Ahaz. You you don't trust me? Ask me a sign. I'll prove it to you. I'll do something small so you will know I can do something big. He's telling him, I'll deliver. I will prove it. I'll do anything. 
By the way, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, gets the same offer, basically, to him. He's sick. And Isaiah says, okay, you repented, you're going to be healed. And he, he wanted a sign, the sign of the sun on the, on the, the sundial going back and forth. And, uh, anyway, his son gets the same thing. It's kind of interesting. Father and son get the same deal. I think also go back to the book of Judges, Gideon his fleece. God, am I really supposed to do this? Well, I'm going to put this fleece here. This time I want it soaking wet. This time I want it dry. But God just giving a sign to confirm what's going on. What sign would Ahaz want? He doesn't even want a sign. He doesn't want one. He says, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. That's not humility. That's not him saying, oh my goodness, I would never impose on the great God of the universe. That's not what he's saying here. This is unbelief. He's saying, I, I don't care. I do not care what God will do. I'm not going to bend my knee to God. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to do what He says. But God gives them a sign anyway. God says, okay, well, tough. I'll give you one anyway. Even though you don't want one, I'm going to give you one. And by the way, I'm going to make it a big one when I do. God responds, Hear ye now, O house of David. doesn't even talk to the king. He says, I'm going to go above you. I'm talking to David's descendants. I'm talking to that promised line. I'm talking to the royal household. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. It says, here's your sign. There's going to be a baby born. And before that baby's grown up to be old enough to understand what's going on, those kings are going to be gone. Your enemies are going to be defeated. You're going to be delivered. Who is this child? By the way, I'll throw this out there. It's not exactly in my notes. word virgin there is very important. That is an important word. This isn't just somebody having a baby. I like being in, I, I don't like being in the hospital. I don't take that wrong. But I do like being in the hospital when they play the little tune on the, on the loudspeakers and you hear the little lullaby because they, they do that when a baby's born. And I just like it. This brings a smile to my face. I, 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 Y'all know me. I like babies. And, 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 and I, just, I, I love that. But that's not just a baby being born. It's a miraculous baby that's about to be born. The Jews say that this is his son, Hezekiah, who will take the throne. The problem is, he's probably already born at this time. It, it really makes no sense if you look at the chronology and stuff. He, he almost certainly is born at this point. Um. Some say it was Isaiah's son, that he had another son, and that was the sign. And I, I don't think that that could possibly be it either. Because the promise of the son here is the promise of the fulfillment, the completion of the promises made to David. It's the promise that Judah would not be eradicated. The Jews would continue on. The house of David would continue on. 
that the that the, the lineage, the descendants would still be there. It's a promise that all the promises of God would be fulfilled. Just a few quick thoughts on that here this morning. Thinking about this promise of the Son, this promise of this miraculous birth that would come. I want to say first off, it's a promise of faithfulness. It's a promise of faithfulness. It is the promise that's fulfilling those promises I mentioned made in the Garden of Eden about the seed of woman. The promises made to Abraham about kings being born of him and his descendants being as the stars and all the nations being blessed through his descendants. It's fulfillment of the promises to David that his, his children, his descendants would be on the throne and it would be established forever. This is God fulfilling. By the way, this is 700 years or so before Jesus is born. This isn't something that happens the next day. Isaiah is going to be dead and in his grave. Isaiah's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren didn't get to see the fulfillment of this promise. But let me tell you something. When God says it, it's going to happen. It may not happen in our timing, but it will happen. He said the Messiah would come. It took a while. <laughs> it took about a thousand years between David and the birth of Christ. It took a couple thousand or so between Abraham and Christ. You know, we think about the same thing. The Bible says Jesus is coming again. So, well, He hadn't come yet. doesn't mean He's not coming. God's working in His time. God is faithful. And that's what you can read into this. God says, Ahaz, you're a rascal. I don't want to bless you. But I'm holding on to my promise. I'm still going to work through this line. I'm still going to bring my Messiah through this line. The second thing I thought about with this is grace. Is grace. What is grace? It's undeserved blessing. You think about what is being promised here. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God didn't have to do this. So yeah, he did to save us. Yeah, I understand, but God could have just wrote off humankind. By the way, God didn't have to give Ahaz any kind of hope. This whole thing is God's grace, giving hope, giving deliverance to this wicked king. But can I take this a little step further? And it's also the hope and promise of deliverance for us, the wicked children of Adam and Eve. Our sinfulness, we're trapped. We're hopeless. We don't deserve what God did, but God says, I'm going to send a Savior for you. That's God's grace on display. Undeserved blessing. The third thing I want to point out, and I, I know kind of some of this overlaps, but deliverance. He's promising Ahaz. Ahaz, I know it looks bad. They're out there. You're surrounded. And, and you may have, like I say, you may have already lost 200,000 people captive and 100,000, 120,000 wounded and killed in battle. You think about all these losses and you think in the back of his mind, like, there's no hope. What do I do? He's desperate. He's going to make foolish decisions on that. He's trying to find deliverance. He tries to find it through his own power. And God says, Ahaz, you don't have to do this. I'll handle it. I'll handle it. 
there's deliverance from a worldly problem, but greater than that, this son that would come delivers from spiritual problems. Gives us a deliverance from a more hopeless situation than Ahaz was in. Because there we are doomed in our sins. Yet the Son of God came unto us. And I want to note this also. You can see in this the faithfulness, you can see grace, you can see deliverance. But this is, I, I like this, I like this, it's personal. It's personal. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. The Lord Himself. There's a difference between doing something yourself and having somebody do it for you. I could, um, you know, get my wife flowers and say, hey, Billy, here's 20 bucks. Go get your mama flowers. Okay, that's kind of special, I guess, sort of. But it's more special if I take the time to go pick them out. 20 bucks wouldn't get very much nowadays anyway. But, but it would be more special for me to go get it and go take it and hand deliver it. When you do it personally, there's a difference between getting a loaf of Mrs. Baird's bread, which I love Mrs. Baird's bread. That's the best stuff in the world. It's great. But there's a difference between going to Walmart and buying a loaf of that and taking the time and making a loaf of homemade bread. There's a big difference there. What the Lord said was, I'm going to take care of this myself. I'm going to give you a sign myself. And by the way, what was the sign? Himself. Think back to Abraham. Abraham goes to offer Isaac. Says the well, where's the sacrifice? Well, the Lord will provide Himself a lamb. Yeah, He did provide Himself a lamb. He provided the sacrifice, but ultimately Christ provided Himself as the sacrifice. And as we see this, this grand problem of sin throughout eternity, God says, I'll take care of this personally. He didn't send Gabriel. He didn't send uh, an angel. He didn't even send a great man or a great woman to do this. He didn't send a great animal. He didn't send a, a, a star, a celestial body. What did he send? He sent himself. He came down and dwelt among us. That's the promise of this. That God did this himself. Folks, when you, you look at this promise and you, you put it into context, you go read Chronicles and Kings and you see the hopelessness that surrounds this situation. A wicked king who doesn't trust in God. Enemy forces and empires at work. So much greater than just one man can comprehend. One man can sway. And in the middle of this, God says, I'm going to give you some hope. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give you some hope. And not just hope for that day, but hope for all eternity. Because Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. God came down. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1. Unto us a son. Unto us a son is born. Un this son, this child of the virgin that came. The musicians, as y'all will come,
most important thing about Christmas is not the presents, it's not the family time. There's so many great things about Christmas. It's not the silly holiday movies or the the food rates up there pretty high. You know, there's, there's some great things about it. But the reason why we celebrate this is that verse right there. A son was born. Miraculously, born of a virgin, sinless, the son of God. Perfect, spotless to be our sacrifice. Let's not lose sight of what happened, not just for our salvation, but the grandeur of who did it of how it happened, the miracle of our salvation. Because a virgin conceived, she bore a son, and we look back today and still say, that was Emmanuel, God with us. And one day, we'll be with Him. One day, we'll be with Him. That's the hope we have. He came to us so we could be with Him. I hope you know Him and I hope you've trusted Him. That's the most important thing in all eternity is to know Him. What number there, Owen? 318 in the Baptist hymnal if you want to sing along. The invitation hymn, if you'll stand please. We pray and have a time of invitation here this morning. Heavenly Father, my what a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful promise we have here in Isaiah and as I read it, I, I know in my in my best day, the, the height of any sort of command I could give to the English language, I cannot do justice to the glory we find in this chapter, to the grace, to the love. Lord, as we go through this Christmas season, let us remember what it's all about. Let us lift high the name of Christ our Emmanuel who came to us. This promise, the hope, the deliverance that comes with it. Let's know it in our hearts and let's just spread that wonderful message of joy and peace far and wide. Speak to us, I pray, this morning. Challenge us as we go through these next few weeks to remember the Son Remember the promise. Remember the deliverance that only He could provide. Speak to us in this invitation time, I pray in the holy name. Amen.